Across the Sky is proudly sponsored by Weather Call Services. Don't be caught off guard in severe weather. Choose Weather Call. Welcome, everybody, to the Across the Sky podcast, our Lee Enterprises National Weather Podcast. I'm meteorologist Joe Martucci in New Jersey. Join with me here, Matt Hollander in Chicago, Sean Sublett in Richmond. Kirsten is off for today. We have a really um, riveting and sometimes what could be an emotional topic, depending on who you ask today. We are talking all about the weather computer models. We're going to talk about what they are, the history of them, misconceptions. Yes, we're going to talk about the European model for our weather enthusiasts out there. Um, but guys, you know, when I think about weather computer modeling, I first think about how hard it was to forecast the weather before computer models. And while we are not modelologists, we are meteorologists. Um, it's tough to be a meteorologist without a computer weather model. Yeah, they are our biggest tool by far. I mean, there, there's no question of that. And before we had them, uh, weather forecasts were much. People complain about the weather forecast today. Well, let me tell you, you go back pre-1950 and uh, you don't want to know how many mistakes there were made. And especially going out, you know, talking about a seven-day forecast or even going beyond seven days. I mean, the best they could hope for, maybe a 24-hour, 48-hour forecast. And there were a lot of problems there, too. Uh, so they, uh, it has been a game changer. I mean, an absolute game changer, not just in the world of meteorology, but just from a society's impact to be able to, again, predict the future. That's what these models are built to do. They have equations built into them to try and project what's going to happen in the future. So they're absolutely our biggest tool, but they're not perfect. And that's why the forecasts aren't perfect. And that's why there's so many different versions. We're trying to build that perfect model, but the perfect model doesn't exist. And so that's the goal. Could there one day be the perfect computer model, but that day has not arrived yet. You know, the uh, the NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, is working on something called the Unified Forecast System, right? It's not quite there yet, but that's that's in development. But, you know, on top of the actual numerical models themselves, we also have to think about the data that goes into them first. You've got to have good data to go into them. And remember, we really didn't have weather satellites until the 1960s. You know, we didn't have weather radars until weather radars until after World War II. Computing power didn't really get fast until the 60s or 70s. Nowadays, it's just zip, 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 zip. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm 54. The first computer I got was an Apple IIe in the early 1980s. I had it like 64K of RAM. Wow. Um, so wow, Sean, you were really living back then. Living the life, man. Big green screen and everything. But, you know, to, to step back on the history of this a little bit, the scientific community, the meteorological community 100 years ago knew that this was numerical weather prediction, we call it. And WP knew that if you understood certain things about the state of the atmosphere now, and we knew certain mathematical relationships, and, and these are differential equations, you could theoretically solve these differential equations forward in time and, and get the state of the atmosphere for some small amount of time into the future. The problem is in the 1920s, this was this was not really, really practical yet. 
So we'll get into that after the break. But Joe, uh, before I get rolling here, why don't we take a little break and give everybody a chance to, to catch their breath? Yeah, let's do it. We got a lot to talk about, about computer models. So take it easy. We'll be back with you in a minute here, and we'll come back to you on the Across the Sky podcast. Hey, everyone. Across the Sky is proudly sponsored by Weather Call Services. Don't be caught off guard by severe weather. Choose Weather Call. Get precise, location-specific alerts via phone, text, or email. With over a decade of experience, WeatherCall delivers pinpoint accuracy for your exact address, ensuring no surprises. Take charge and stay prepared when ominous skies loom. Explore the WeatherCall difference today. Visit weathercallservices.com slash leeenterprises and safeguard yourself, your business, or any school that matters to you. You can also find that link in our Across the Sky show notes, weathercallservices.com slash Lee Enterprises. So we're continuing our conversation about weather computer modeling, and Sean nailed it on the head. Weather computer modeling is really just a very big math equation. And the way that you solve these math equations is what you're seeing on these computer models. Um, Sean, feel free to go back to the history of computer modeling, yeah. but you're right. In the 1920s, um, there were some thoughts about doing this mm -hmm. but realistically there was no way to do this unless you had a couple thousand people doing right. these math equations at the same time right i mean this goes back about a hundred years to the 1920s and lewis richardson used some very primitive equations how we understood how how the basics of the atmosphere flowed and and did the calculations by hand but that's not fast enough to be useful. In fact, the, the the story goes that it took them six weeks to do a six hour forecast using using you know the differential equations. So that's useless, right? And I remember this even in the eighties and early nineties. You know, my professors telling me, you know, who who were coming through it in the sixties or seventies, how they would have to solve some of the equations themselves by hand just to have a full appreciation for how rapidly the computers could do it. So this is something that is theoretically possible, has been theoretically possible for a long time. But the advent of computers and the fact that computers can do so many calculations so rapidly has enabled forecasting to be as strong as it is. And I think one of the things that we kind of run into, guys, is Sometimes we're a victim of our own success. People expect it to be just perfect. Um, and it's never going to be perfect. I mean, once we got past World War II, uh, then the the game started to change a little bit. Jewel Charney and, and the ENIAC in the 1950s. And you were able to do the forecast or a 24-hour forecast in about 24 hours. So you kind of break even, but that's still not enough to be useful, right? Right. And the uh, the first forecast was issued on May 6th, 1955. And, you know, when you look at how computer models are made, a lot of this has to do with how dense or solution is of these computer models, meaning, you know, how thin of a slice of the atmosphere you're looking at, because the more you can put into this computer model, the more specifics you can get out of it. So back in the 1950s, you really, they really just took three points of the atmosphere from the surface up above 
aloft, and it was only in the northern hemisphere that it was calculated. And in fact, it went down to one layer of the atmosphere in 1958. Um, and that was the same year we had our first effective weather modeling where you could have some skill in forecasting what's going to happen in the next couple of hours. And then as computer speed and memory improved, you know, the details that went into the computer modeling improved more layers of the atmosphere. So you're looking at a thousand feet high, 5,000 feet high, 10,000 feet high. You're putting that all in and also the, what we call the grid or how many plots on the surface there are, how many points there are, you know, increase. So instead of one pixel being maybe 100 miles wide by 100 miles wide, it went to 25 miles wide by 25 miles wide. And now you're talking about three kilometers wide, which is very detailed and it's only getting better. You know, I think, and I don't, you know, I, I don't know this to be exactly true, but I always was told, you know, growing up, you know, in the past, you know, even in my teens, when you when smartphones were first coming out, that like the first iPhone had more memory and computing pass capacity than what was in the first rockets and uh, satellites that went to the moon, you know? So you really talk about a much different time back then. Anything else anybody wants to share on the history of computer modeling before we actually get into the types of models we're working with now? Well, I mean, one of the reasons why the computer models have gotten better is, you, you said it, Joe, the computers have gotten better. They've become more powerful. They can process more data. They can process it faster. But what's also helped and is still ongoing and why we still have gaps and why there's still problems with computer modeling is you got to talk about the data going in to these computer models, because that's how it starts. We take a picture of the atmosphere, what's happening now. And again, not just at the surface, but as you mentioned, Joe, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 feet up, what's the temperature? What's the pressure? What's the current airspeed? Again, what is happening right now? And then using those equations that are in the models, projecting how what's happening right now is going to change in the future. But if you don't have an accurate picture of what's happening right now, then projecting how it's going to change in the future gets problematic, especially the farther and farther you go out in the future. And so fortunately, you know, since this all started back in the 1950s, yes, satellites coming out to help fill in the gaps where we're not launching weather balloons, because that's one of the biggest gaps that we have and why we talked about on our episode about drones, why we need more upper air observation, because we have more and more weather stations. Fortunately, that's gotten better. And part of it is just because human population has grown. There are more people in more locations. So we have more weather stations at the surface in more locations. We have buoys out in the ocean that are taking sea surface temperatures and what the air temperature is out in the oceans. But still a lot of gaps, especially over the oceans and what's happening above the surface. And that's gotten better with time and the satellites have certainly helped. But the problem is there are still more gaps than we would like. So having things like drones to fill in those gaps especially upper levels of the atmosphere, so we can have a more, a better picture of what's happening right now. The clearer that picture is of what's happening right now and the more detail we can get of what's happening right now, the better the computer models will be at projecting how it's going to change in the future. So that's one of the ongoing challenges. It's not just improving the computers, but improving the data and having more of that data to put into the computers in the first place. Yeah, I mean, because the, the point is you're never going to have a perfect representation digitally of the entire atmosphere to start a computer model because you can't know what's going on on every cubic inch in the atmosphere, right? You, you have to make some assumptions. You have to make some guesses. And this is what's called the first guess field 
into a computer model. You have all these observations, all this data, and you have to assimilate it. You have to put it into something that the computer can understand on a nice, neat little grid so it can go run its calculations and return a result. Uh, and that's where, and we'll talk about this a little bit more <clears throat> European GFS stuff later, but that's that's everything right now. Because if you don't have, as you said, Matt, the most perfect first guess field, then you're going to have more problems in your forecast, 12, 24, 48, 72 hours out. Because any kind of small errors get magnified as you go forward in time. This is why you can't run a regular old uh, mesoscale model out to 360 hours because the roundoff error gets so bad that the forecast loses all kinds of skill. So that's one of the, the limitations to how good it can all be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're kind of touching on what, you know, we want to chat about next, mm -hmm. which are the types of weather computer models. So, We'll start off with, I think, is the most popular ones, at least for everyone listening here, are medium-range models. They're ones that look generally 3 to 15 days out, um, and they excel, you know, do the best in that 3 to 7-day range. And those are the European model, the GFS, which is an American model. Those are the two big ones. I think a lot of us are aware of those. I get emails and Facebook comments all the time about them. But there's also other ones out there that, we use, there's the Canadian model, the CMC model, Japan, actually the JMA model, the Japanese have been producing computer models since the 50s. I think they were the third country to produce a weather computer model. We also have the UK Met. Um, there's other ones out there, the Icon model, which is by Germany. Um, so you have your medium range ones. Then when you're looking at something that's going to happen today or tomorrow, think about Hey, where are there going to be thunderstorms? Or, you know, what time is that cold front going to pass through? Then you're looking at these shorter range models, the HRRR or the HER model. That's an American model. The NAM, the North American model, also run by us here in America. We have the RGEM, which is from the Canadian model. There's other ones as well. Am I missing any short range ones that are popular, guys? There's some in the private sector, too. There are companies that develop their own computer models. And for example... Uh, if you're listening to this on a Lee Enterprises website, the videos that we create, or the company that we use is called The Weather Company, and they're a graphics provider, and they actually have their own in-house model. That's one that we show sometimes, and it's one of those short-range, high-resolution models uh, called the Graph, and it's used at many other TV stations. Anybody who's a, a customer of The Weather Company has access to this model. And there's some other companies out there that have developed their own models, but you have to be a paying customer of that company to have access to it. So some of these models are freely available, and Anyone can access it. Other times you have to pay a subscription to have access to some of these models. So that's a, a factor as well. And, and a right. lot of this, a lot of this model data comes out and, and some of this raw stuff is what populates phone apps. Some of it has a little bit of post-processing, but for a weather app, if you don't know where your weather app's coming from, the data is coming from, um, you know, I, I would say that there's some are more trustworthy than others, but none are perfect right? Especially in rapidly changing situations. But basically your weather app is, is a weather computer model and they're taking some statistics from the model and dumping them into a, a pretty interface and populating your phone. But right. this is the core. This is the core of, <clears throat> of weather apps is, is these computer simulations, computer models. They tweak a little bit and they know where you are through GPS and they pop something down, uh, some kind of forecast on your phone. 
And normally when the weather's pretty quiet, they're not bad at all. But when the weather changes rapidly, they don't do quite as well. But as we talk a little bit more about, about the types of models, it's important to know how this is, has evolved. I mean, I remember, and I'm going to pull my old man card out here, you know, in, in the seventies, there was something called the limited fine mesh. Um, and then there was the nested grid model that came around in the mid eighties. And these are kind of, these weren't mesoscale models, but they were regional models. Um, ultimately the ADA gave way to the NAM North American mesoscale. Uh, so it's always been this kind of progression, this evolution, as we understand the physics better, as computing power gets a little bit better, we can build a grid of our model that's a little bit finer so we can resolve more fine features like and maybe an individual thunderstorm or two or a squall line. So the better our understanding and the better our computing power get, the stronger the models are going to get. But um, but we all know that they're never going to be perfect. No, they're never going to be perfect. And you touched on something, too, I should have said. A lot of these short, in fact, all of these short range models only show a limited area. Mm -hmm. The North American models, probably the biggest area it shows, and that's just North America. Uh, you know, the RGEM model, which is from Canada, um, you know, it's Canada and some of the United States. So, you know, the shorter range models, more details into them. You can also view these things hour by hour. Usually these medium range ones, you're viewing on three or six hour time steps. These are hour three hours sometimes in the her situation 15 minutes but the scope of what you're looking at them is smaller and then also the last one we had medium range short range long range this is when we're looking at the weeks to month long time scale they're on the global level but you're not looking you're not going to use this to see what snow is coming you know four days from now you don't use a butcher's knife to cut a strawberry so, you know, yeah, those kinds of models, tools. yeah, we use those kinds of models just to get general ideas <laughs> of, of what the weather might be like two, three, four weeks from now. That's kind of sub seasonal forecast. Hey, does January or February look warmer than normal? Does March look wetter than normal? What we would expect. So, you know, you don't use those models to say, is it going to snow 74 days from now? That's there's nothing. None's going to help you there. But those kinds of models, those long range models, give you a little insight or possibility as if the weather is going to tweak in one direction or the other over the course of several days or a few weeks. And that's where and that's where a lot of uh, a lot of time and money is spent right now. That and, of course, um, machine learning. And we're hoping to get a few more experts on that uh, coming up here in, in the weeks to come. But, you know, talking about more differences between the short range models and those medium and long range models, it's also the frequency at which they update. So models like the HER, their new runs of the HER come out every hour based on the latest radar data because that HER ingests current radar data and it makes tweaks on an hourly basis based on what's happening right now with the thunderstorms, rain, snow that's out there right now. But models like the GFS and the Euro, then you're only talking about updates coming every six or 12 hours. So those shorter range models update more frequently as well. Longer range models don't update as frequently. And especially for the longer range, we're talking about updates only every 12 hours. Because one of the things, and again, this all comes back 
to the initial data going into the models because weather balloons are only launched twice a day from certain locations across the world, but only twice a day. So in between, yeah, we have all these surface observations that you can ingest new data into the models, which is helpful for those short range models, but especially at the longer range, like we're missing big chunks in between those every 12 hour weather balloon observations. And so it's almost, again, because there's no new data coming in, then it's almost like, well, well, though the computers could technically be running a new run of the model, if there's no new data to put into the model, then there's no need to really run a new model. So I, one of the things I always come back to, I just wish we had more weather balloons and they were launched more frequently, then we could update the models. There would be more new data to put into the models. Right now, there's kind of a situation where, well, we could run the models more frequently. The computing power is getting there where we can do it, but we don't have new observation data to put in. So if there's no new data to put in, there's really no need to run a new model. So again, there is a limitation on just how much new data we can even put into the models. Yeah, and the satellites are starting to pick up on that. The instrumentation on the satellites are better. They can sense the depth of the atmosphere better than they used to. Both the, uh, the geostationary satellites, those classical ones we use, but there's a little bit of the polar orbiter satellite data. And I say polar orbiter, these are satellites that that don't just go around the Earth at the same rate the Earth turns, which is what we normally see on TV and all. But these polar orbiting satellites have an orbit that go from north to south. And because they are closer to the surface, I mean, they're not on the ground, um, but they are closer to the ground than 23,000 miles away. So they can sample what's going on in the atmosphere, at, at least in space, a little more, a little better, a little more, um, little more frequently at a better resolution. But when I say frequently, it only gets, it only looks at a certain spot on the globe a couple of times a day, because you know the the satellite rotates north and south, the Earth turns east to west underneath of it. So you are only going to get a couple of passes over an individual site every day. So, you know, the satellites are helping for sure. Uh, you know, we have methods to determine, you know, water vapor content of the atmosphere from satellites, but nothing is quite as good as what we call those in situ measurements or taking a big old hygrometer and a thermometer, putting them on the base of a weather balloon and sending them up into the sky. But as you said, Matt, there's there's limits on what we can do with that. And, you know, one of the questions that I often get is like, well, how do you know which model to use? And the answer is it's good to look at all the options and all the models. Now, in the short term, when you're talking about those short range models, you can see the day of which model is doing the best. The best thing you can do is like, OK, it's one o'clock in the afternoon. Let's look at what's happening right now. And what does the model say should be happening right now? And so you can do a direct comparison. Here's what the model says should be happening. And here's what's actually happening. And you can see by doing that, oh, it turns out that the NAM is actually most accurate right now, even more accurate than the HER or the GRAP or those other short range models. So for those short range models, you can directly compare them and see which one is performing the best right now. And the frustrating thing is it really does change on a daily basis. Some days the NAM is doing the best. Other days, the HER is doing the best. And so you do, unfortunately, there's no one model that every day you can count on being the most accurate. But that's that's part of what I do every time I'm making the forecast, like which one is doing the best? And that works in the short term when you're making, then you can trust that model more 
in the next 24 to 48 hours. But the farther out you go, then again, as I talked about, suddenly the NAM the next day isn't the most accurate. So that really only works in the short term for the next 24 to 48 hours. You go beyond that and you really can't count on that model continuing to perform and be the best. And so the best thing you can do is look at all the options and look at all the different possibilities and somewhere in between is most likely what's going to happen. So let's get into maybe the uh, the hottest topic that we'll see in this uh, podcast here, which is the GFS in the Euro. Is the Euro better? Is the GFS okay? We all get these questions. People ask me, you know, but the or they tell me the European model said this, you know, GFS model called the goofus model because it's goofy. People don't, you know, that's just a stereotype with it. However, just backing up, both of these computer models are powerful, powerful systems, and they allow us to forecast with skill what's going to happen here. Now, the GFS model is an American system, European model run by the European um, weathers. um, What is it, Sean? The European European uh, Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasting. There we go. European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecast. And they've been running that model since the mid-80s. With upgrades, of course. Right, right. They've had upgrades and everything here. So, is the European model more accurate than the GFS model? Um, yes, there is a little more skill if you look at, and I'm, this is at the mid-levels of the atmosphere, when you look at a five-day forecast since 2007, the European model has had a little more skill. We're talking like a couple of percentage points. Does that mean that the GFS model is unreliable? Absolutely not. Uh, in fact, I could tell you just from my own forecasting, the past couple of weeks here in the mid-Atlantic, I feel like the GFS has done better than the European model. So doesn't mean that every time is wrong. You know, with the GFS, they're both accurate models. Europeans a little more accurate. It got its name known because of it nailing the track of Sandy, Hurricane Superstorm Sandy, Hurricane Sandy in 2012, when it curved from the Bahamas out to the north and east and then came back into New Jersey, going from east to west. But they're both accurate models. What I'll say is this, and I have to shout out my friend Mike Favetta, weatherprep.com, about this explanation between the GFS and the European model. Let's say America and Europe had $100 to spend on computer weather modeling. Well, what the ECMWF does is they take all that $100, they put it into the European model. What the Americans will do is take $70 of that, put that into the GFS model, but then take another $20, put that into that North American model, that finer resolution model where you can see what's happening with thunderstorms. Uh, you can see what's happening with temperatures on an hour-by-hour hour basis. And then another $10 into the Hurdy HRRR, which is even more detailed and has more resolution. So that's kind of the split between the two. But the European, for example, the European model is not a good model to say, what time are the thunderstorms coming today? It's just doesn't, it's not skillful in that kind of, forecasting you're going to go to the nam or to her for that you won't even go to the gfs for that so that's my piece on the gfs and european model matt and sean you guys chime on it yeah let's go back to the to the title of the thing for the european the european center for medium range 
forecasting. They're really not interested in forecasting thunderstorms in the next three to six hours. That's not how they built the thing, right? So that's why in America, we do have the high resolution rapid refresh model, HRRR. So we can do those things that the Europeans are not. And oh, by the way, a lot of that European model money is private money as opposed to public funds, which are running NOAA, the parent company organization uh, that runs the, that builds the, the GFS, the HRRR, and the complete modeling suite that, that most of us rely on in what we call the weather enterprise. So, and, and going back to what we said earlier, there are different ways to do this first guess field, right? Uh, the data assimilation into the model. And it's generally accepted that the European model has a better data assimilation package into the start of their model than the GFS. But it's not like we're just sitting around doing nothing. As I mentioned before, NOAA's in development of the unified forecasting system. So they are working on bringing that back up to a stronger level so that we are competitive. Well, we're already competitive with the European forecast system, right? Uh, but make it stronger uh, and make it even more reliable. So sometimes it just does better than others. That's just the way of the world because not everybody knows everything about the atmosphere everywhere. All scientists are going to have to make some assumptions and some guesses. Uh, and then we see how the models play out. You refine your calculations, you refine your assumptions, and then the models get better. And the reason we talk about the GFS and the Euro so much is they do seem to be the best performing of those medium range models that we talked about. Those two do seem to be the best performing ones. And really, when you look two, three days out, usually the GFS and the Euro aren't that different in what they're saying. They're usually pretty close. Where they tend to diverge more is when you go four, five, six, seven days out. And that's where you really get into the debates about which model is, is going to be right and wrong. And I think that's one thing that we do have to be clear when we're talking about making a forecast six, seven days out. I think one thing the public doesn't understand is how different the, the solutions and the models can be. And you know why we talk about a 50% chance of rain six, seven days out? Because there can be a model that is absolutely covering, let's say Chicago, where I am, and rain. It looks like it is going to dump on rain. Meanwhile, and that could be what the GFS says. Meanwhile, the Euro could have absolutely no rain. None, completely dry in Chicago. So what do you do? One model says it's going to dump on Chicago in six days. The other says it's going to be completely dry. So there you have the 50% chance of rain. <laughs> that's, where, that's where these percentages come up because of all the different variations in this model, especially, I mean, again, and sometimes there can be big temperature differences too. I mean, you can be talking about one model saying it's going to be 70 degrees, another model saying it's going to be 50 degrees, especially six, seven days out. That is not uncommon. And so then we go with a forecast of, say, one model says the high is 70, one model says the high is 50. Well, go in between, a high of 60. Now, that may end up, the model that was right, <laughs> model that said 50 may end up being right. The model set that said it's going to be 70 may end up being right. But the safest thing you can do that far out when there's such a huge difference in the possibilities is go in between, go in the middle. And that's where we come in as meteorologists to try and interpret all this data. And it's like, what's the safest bet right now? And then we adjust based on maybe the model that said it was 50 starts to trend warmer or the opposite. The warmer model starts to trend colder. And then we adjust the forecast based on that. So you do have to understand that always take that forecast six, seven days out 
with a grain of salt because it's probably going to change. And the reason is because there can be some huge possibilities in what is going to happen. So I always tell people, check the forecast at least once a day for the latest information. You can't just look at a forecast five, six, seven days out and think, okay, that's what's going to happen. Check every day because it's likely going to change. It is. And it's, you know, it's also incredible though. Think about this, right? You know, and we'll turn it over to maybe our uh, longest tenured meteorologist for this one. But I would say, Sean, probably when you started, you know, getting into weather, right? And you started working as a meteorologist, I feel like people probably weren't asking you on Monday what the weather would be like the following weekend and expecting a, a truly accurate answer. I do feel like that is the case now. We're like, people are asking me on Monday, what's going to happen Saturday? And, and they want that to be the answer. Yeah, I mean, I think the as I said before, we're a victim of our own success because we have gotten so much better, especially in the last 25 years. Um, you know, the five-day forecast is as accurate as and I'm just off the top of my head, about as is about as accurate now as a three-day forecast was 30 years ago. So it does continue to get better. Back to to Matt's point about this model says this and this model says this. Um you know, we've also reached the the point now in computing power because we can't have a perfect first guess field. We can't know the precise uh, situation in the entire atmosphere uh, at the beginning of our forecast model period. We can make some small adjustments to that first guess field and then run the model. But we can make small adjustments in several different ways. In fact, and the Europeans are doing it, I think now we're doing it a hundred different ways. In other words, you you have a model, let's say it starts at seven o'clock in the morning and you generate a hundred different first guess fields all at seven o'clock in the morning. And then you run the model for all those times. And each one is going to give you a slightly different solution. We call these the ensembles. All right. Uh, and these become very useful to help build confidence in a forecast when there seems to be a lot of discrepancy. If you've got a hundred different solutions from a model, but 80 of them are pointing in the same direction, well, that's going to build your confidence. I mean, it may be even, maybe they're split, maybe 30 say this, 30 say this, 40 say that, that that's tough, right? But this really becomes a big deal as we get into wintertime forecasting, as we get into hurricane forecasting, when you want as many solutions out there as possible to give you some confidence in what one model is trying to tell you. We're kind of at the point now where you don't just look at the models and go, oh, the model says X, Y, or Z. But you look at what the you look at what the model is trying to tell you. You look at successive runs of the model. Well, at, at seven a.m. it said this. Then at seven p.m. it said this. And then, and then you see is the model trending toward a certain direction, toward a certain solution. And, and this is not new. I mean, I, this was beaten in, into my head as an undergraduate. Sometimes the trend of the models are better than the models themselves. So you have to look beyond what the model is just saying strictly and look at what the, the atmosphere is trying to tell you. I mean, and Joe, this is what we do with, with snow research, right? I mean, three weeks before the snow on the 13th of February, we said, hey, keep circle this on your calendar 
on the 13th of February. We see a signal here. We don't know exactly what it is, but it looks like there's going to be some snow somewhere in the Northeast on the 13th. Lo and behold, it snowed and it snowed a lot in some places. You know, we're not going to tell you it's going to snow eight inches in Scranton, but we could say there's a signal here. Let's keep an eye on this area two weeks from now. So if you are trying to plan something outside or you've got travel plans, it's one of those things like, okay, there's a disturbance in the force, as I like to say, for Star Trek fans. There's something there. We don't know exactly what it is, uh, but but we see a signal there that could be, could be some disruptive weather around this time. And this is what the ensembles are especially good at. Little plug, snow search, Wednesdays, usually Wednesday nights. If you live from New York down to North Carolina, we're talking about it. We're talking about what's happening the following week. So every Wednesday, you're going to see what's happening the following week. That was my plug. Matt, back to you. No, I think I just want to make you know clear to people because I think people have gotten very caught up and they love it. You know, things that are on their phone, what is in the weather app on the phone, and the thing that you know people love to look at is the hour by hour forecast. You know, what you can do twenty four and it starts to stretch once you go beyond twenty four hours. You expect that to change. I do, I do have to say, but there's really no point in going beyond forty eight hours because those hour by hour forecasts are really based on those short range models. Remember that. The short range models, some of them only go out 48 hours, some 72, but that's it. And so the farther out we go, I think the public has this misconception, a lot of folks do, that we can be that detailed, like going hour by hour. And there's some apps out there that try and do things beyond three days. They try and do an hour by hour forecast, but you're not using models that even update at hourly intervals. So... <laughs> It's not good, and I strongly discourage anyone looking at hour-by-hour hour forecast beyond 48 hours. Uh, what I want to stress to people is the farther you go out in time, you know, even when you're talking four and five days versus six, seven days, and even beyond seven days, we have less detail. There is less information. We can't get as specific as we can in the next 24, 48 hours about the exact timing of the rain about exactly where the rain or the snow is going to be. Because I talk, it comes back to how messy the models. Some models might have snow in New York, while another model says, no, the snow is going to be in Virginia. Now we know that between Virginia and New York, there could be snow, but we can't say specifically, is it going to be in New York yet or Virginia yet? So that's why we can't get as specific. And we can, one model may say you have to, remember the models have different timing too. One model may say it's going to snow on Saturday. The other model says, no, it's not going to start snowing until Sunday. So we can't get as specific about when snow is going to start and end and exactly where it's going to be or rain or really all weather conditions. The farther out you go, the less information I have, the less details we have. So that, again, looking at a forecast that's four, five, six, seven days out, expect adjustments to that forecast. And don't, get at, don't try and ask questions about what time is the rain going to begin four, five, six, seven days out because... We could say it's more likely in the afternoon or more, you know, really six, seven days out. We could say more likely at night versus a day. You get in that four and five day range and we might be able to say more likely in the morning versus the afternoon. But that's as specific as we can be. It's not until you get to the next 24, 48 hours where we can start talking specific times. So <laughs> bear with us when we don't provide you more details beyond the next 48 hours. It's because we simply can't do it yet. Maybe one day, but we're not there yet. I think with that, we'll take one last break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the future, the future 
of weather computer modeling. We're going to talk about AI too, what that means. We'll wrap it up here on the Across the Sky podcast. And we're wrapping up our discussion about computer weather modeling. I hope you all have been able to take something from what we said about the history of computer modeling, the different kinds of computer models there are out there, and how we use it to forecast. Now, we're going to forecast talking about the forecasting of computer models. We're going to go into the future here. Uh, the big thing uh, is AI. I think we all know that. That's not anything new. Uh, there was news a couple of months ago that Google came out with their own AI computer modeling called the GraphCast, G-R-A-P-H-C-A-S-T. Um, now, this was pretty revolutionary in the sense that it could go out to 10 days and do this in less than a minute. Now, it takes hours to do these medium-range modeling. The short-range modeling will take an hour or two. Uh, so it's cutting down the time tremendously, also uses less energy as a result because these computer models, they, they take up a lot of, they need a lot of power to make these things happen. Um, and it has 1 million grid points across the globe. Um, the graph cast, all it does is takes the state of the weather six hours ago, the current state of the weather now, and uses AI to produce a forecast. Um, my understanding of it, and I am not an expert in this, is that it is good, but it's not great. Uh, it needs to be refined. But geez, if you can produce a model in less than a minute with a million grid points, that sounds like revolutionary to me. Um, so what have you guys heard about this? And maybe it's not just Google, but anything with AI and computer modeling. You know, I was, uh, you know, we were at the AMS annual meeting a couple of weeks ago and I was at a, a kind of a, a sit down or you know, um, town hall, if you will, with some people who are working in this space in AI. And, and and to be honest, I've reached out to one of them to have them on the podcast. So let's hope he get back to me. But the people who are working on this seem very optimistic and have, have largely become convinced that we are going to see a sea change in how weather forecasting is done in the next two to three years, that it will very rapidly transition to this machine learning, artificial intelligence. As, as you said, um, we're basically, you do a bunch of statistical correlations and pattern recognition by the computer and it projects it forward and it looks at what's happened historically and it produces a forecast but the computer kind of actually learns the physical relationships, which totally is mind blowing. So um, I don't, I'm a little skeptical, but man, to see the looks on the faces of these folks as they're presenting their information, they showed us some, some visualizations, some places where their stuff failed, some places where it, it succeeded. So it does have a long way to go, but the idea here is that these things can learn quickly, rapidly. Um, so we will see what kind of conversation we're having in 2026, 2027 uh, about numerical weather prediction. Um, it, it does have a lot of promise. We'll see if it comes to fruition. And man, I'm going to keep on pestering to get somebody on this podcast because I need to learn more about it. 
Well, I'm excited how AI could save us time as meteorologists. You know, one of the ways, you know, of course, finding ways for AI to improve the models is one thing, but also just saving us time. Because I talked about one of the things I do every day is looking at all the models and trying to figure out, especially for the next 24, 40 hours, which one is doing the best right now? Which one is the most accurate? And if I could have an AI bot do that for me and do the comparison and say, hey, Matt, this model is performing the best right now. That would save me half an hour every day instead of having to look at all the models and trying to figure out which one's doing the best. If the AI could do that, and that's more time I could spend on building the graphics and helping explain people what the forecast is going to be. So I see it as a potential time saver. And then if you're looking for other tools that are coming out that are improving the computer model situation, one thing we have to talk about uh, that came about in 2020 is what's called the National Blend of Models, developed by the National Weather Service. And it's not a new model, but it is exactly what it says, a blend of all the models. Because I talked about, especially when you go four or five, six, seven days out, how they can be so different. You look at one model and it is very different from what another model is saying. So really what we have found over and over again is besides in the short term, the best and most accurate forecast is usually an average of all the computer models. And instead of us, again, that was something that even when I started my career, I was doing, I would take, all right, what's the GF? forecasting for the high temperature? What's the Euro forecasting for the high temperature? What's the Canadian forecasting for the high temperature? And I would take the average. I would physically do that step. But now, thanks to the national blend of models, it does that for me. And it takes all the different forecasts from all the different models and gives you what is the average right now. And so that has been a big time saver and has become a very useful tool, especially in that four, five, six, seven day range out so you can almost skip having to look at and compare all the different models six or seven days out. It's like, well, what is the average of all those models right now? And that's usually the most accurate forecast. Now, ultimately, could the GFS end up being the right model, the Euro and its solution? Yes, but we can't say that for sure right now. So an average is the best, and that's what the NBM allows us to do. And that only came out in 2020, and that's one that uh, has been a, already, I would say, somewhat of a game changer in meteorology just for the amount of time it's already saved us and improving forecasts farther out rather than in the short term. So uh, I'm looking forward to more improvements on that NBM as well. One last thing I'll say, and then we can wrap it on up. Um, you know, one thing we learned, Sean and I learned at the AMS conference, we were having dinner with some people and we were talking about how AI can impact the commodities markets um, or things like energy, uh, energy, you know, trading in terms of, you know, oil, gas, uh, nuclear, whatever, can be based upon what the weather computer models are saying. And you will see shifts in volume for trading as these computer models come out. What I understood during our conversations is that in the next year or two, these commodities companies will try to use AI to predict what the European model is going to say, what the GFS model is going to say, so that they can beat out these other companies and make a little extra money uh, if they can get that right information a little bit quicker than other companies. So that's something interesting. I think we're going to get a topic on that too, because that's something we don't always think about. You don't think about energy maybe in weather all the time, um, but there is a connection there in AI should fuel this in some way as we go forward and then just the next one to two or three years so with that 
we'll wrap it up for our weather computer models conversation. We hope you all enjoyed this. We have plenty of new podcasts coming up on the way. New episodes every Monday, of course. Fellas, anything else? Any final words before we close on out? If you got any weather questions for us, send us an email, podcast at lee.net. That is correct. You can send us an email, podcast.lee.net. Uh, we also have a phone number as well that I was going to pull up. Let's see if I can pull it up. It's 609. I know that area code. I can never get the rest of it right. Uh, here we go. It is 609-272-7099. Sean, anything from you? No, that's it, man. It should be a very exciting time going in these next two to three years to see where all this, all this computing power takes us. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll wrap it on up here. We hope you all enjoyed. We'll be back with you next Monday on the Across the Sky podcast. Download and subscribe if you like what we're doing as well. You can find this podcast wherever you get your podcast. Take care, everybody.